go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you will. It was many centuries ago now that one of the great church fathers by the name of Augustine said, you have made us, speaking of God, of course, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless till we find, or till it finds rest in you. In other words, Augustine said to us, welcome to the chase. We are now three weeks deep into our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, where we find ourselves written across the pages from the words of the preacher From the school of the wisdom of Solomon, we find these challenging series of truths. One of the things that we found already is that we chase something. All of us are in the chase for something. Ultimately, we boil it down to the search for meaning in life. We boil it down to what's life all about. And this book of Ecclesiastes helps us with that. The writer has recorded from the wisest man who ever lived in the search and the chase that he was on, some of the things that help us avoid making mistakes of our time. As we do that today, I bring you to this new element. A key element in our chase is time. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 3, but as we get there, I want us to start already thinking about time. Now, I put a deal out on Facebook yesterday just to get your help a little bit. Uh, the basic idea behind it is that time is so much a part of our lives that poets and songwriters historically have cool, uh, pulled in the idea of time and are challenges with it, and they are not all that positive in their summary judgment most of the time. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, by the way... Y'all gave me things like Jim Croce and uh, my brother gave me Pink Floyd, which is uh, typical of my brother. But uh, this occurred in my high school senior English class. I told the first service, I tell you that I had an English, English class as a senior just to let you know that I actually took English, even though you wouldn't know it by the way I talk most of the time. But... Uh, In this senior English class, our teacher gave us an assignment that if she ever could have given an assignment that I had absolutely no point of reference with, it was this one. We were supposed to go out and find a poem that spoke to us. And first of all, I, I had heard the word poem before, but I had no idea what it was all about. And uh, I don't remember how I did on that assignment. I'm sure that it was uh, rather underwhelming the way I came across. But uh, I will forever remember the guy who clutched it. You know what I mean by that? There's always a moment in your public school career where somebody clutches it and you sit back going, man, I wish I'd have been the one doing that. Here's the deal. Our teacher was... A Pentecostal lady loved the Lord. My mom knew her outside of school, and and we knew that she loved the Lord, and she was very involved in her church and Christian faith. And uh, she was one of those old maid school teachers, uh, and she just gave herself to the Lord and to her students. That's just who she was. Uh, And so the picture of her is typical for that uh, time and that particular approach to church. And... uh, My friend, now his name was Jimmy Carter. He was not the president that some of you are thinking about. Uh, This is a guy that I used to run with and got in a lot of trouble with before it was all said and done. 
Uh, but Jimmy Carter was the kind of guy who was always pushing the edges. You know what I mean by that? Always pushing buttons for teachers and that kind of thing. And he got up for this assignment and uh, he started quoting these words. Ticking away the moments that make up a dull day. Fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way. Now there's more to this and I'm going to come to it later, okay? So I'm not going to quote it all right now. But he quoted starting off with those few verses. And by the time he finished the whole thing, our English teacher was beside herself with the beauty and the poignant message of that poem. So much so that she was beside herself to the point that she said, Jimmy, that, is, that may be one of the most insightful pieces of poetry I've ever heard. Wherever did you find it? I'm not familiar with that passage. He said, well, it comes from Pink Floyd. Now, if you don't know who Pink Floyd is... Uh, well, let's just say that normally uh, she would not have been listening to their music. All right? Now, that captures something for us. Pink Floyd was a band that played kind of what we would in those days called acid rock, meaning, you know, take some acid and listen to this music kind of rock. Um, not the ones that you normally would look to for deep meaning about life. But they captured something for us. And they're going to capture something else out of that same song. I'll go to that in just a second. But I want to train our thinking now just how big a deal time is for us in our life these days. We reward people who make good use of their time. In other words, people who can cram more work into a short period of time, we reward them. You want a good example of that? Michael Phelps. Here's a guy who has won more Olympic medals than anybody else. And the reason he's done it is because he can put more swimming into a handful of seconds than anybody else in history has been able to do. So what do we do? We award him for that. How many of you this morning are wearing a watch of some kind? I walked into a Sunday school class this morning. Great class. If, you don't, if you're not involved in Bible study classes here, you ought to be. Okay, It's a great study this morning. I walked in and I sat down and another friend of mine from church was sitting next to me there. And I looked above the teacher with a clock. Happens to be on my mind today since I'm preaching about time. And also that I knew I couldn't stay in there very long. I looked at the clock and it said 6.30. And I thought to myself, I'm late. And then I thought, no, I'm early. And then I thought, no, the clock's wrong. So then I panicked. So I looked at my watch. We are time conscious. And we reward people who can cram more. As a matter of fact, you know that there is, well, if, how do we measure time? The smallest measurement of time that most of us know about is called the second, right? Is that more or less a second? You realize that I'm told, and I've, I did some research on the internet this week and learned words, or actually read words that I have no idea what they mean or how to pronounce them. Scientists now, and this is out of Boulder, Colorado, have, are developing, have developed a clock. You ready for this? 
They've developed a clock that is called an optical atomic clock. Now, here's the basic idea. You know the atomic clock, and you, most of us are aware of that. Some of you even have atomic clocks in your home because you want it to be exactly right. You don't want to trust Sprint or somebody else to give you the right time. So you go to this one that shoots out this signal all across the world. The atomic clock now has been improved by the optical atomic clock. They've taken our seconds, and by shooting a laser at a train spot and measuring the molecule when it passes the zero mark, whatever that means, they have determined now that they can take the one-second interval that we live with, and every second now they've broken down to quadrillion moments. Between every second, a quadrillion breakdowns. Now, if you're not familiar with the term quadrillion, it's what our national debt will be before too long. (laughs) Now, I want you to think about that. Trillion is a big number for most of us. Quadrillion is incredibly difficult for me to wrap my mind around, and yet we have people in this world, smarter than me to be sure, who are saying or at least believing by their actions that we need to be able to subdivide time even below what it already has been. They say that it'll help with things like deep space exploration and navigation and those kind of things. We're obsessed with time in our times. The writer of Ecclesiastes, in his chase, has been systematically opening chests for us to peer into. In our own chase, he's been saying, I tried this. You know, kind of the unwritten part of it for him, and maybe not so unwritten in some places is, I tried it, didn't work, don't bother. So we should learn from him. And now he comes after he's looked at these other things and he says, and so now let's talk about time. The songs of our eras reflect this. As a matter of fact, back during the Vietnam War, this very passage that we're going to look at today was famous as a song by a group called The Birds. It was a war protest song. To everything, there's a season. Turn, 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 and ultimately turn away from war was their intent. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I just want to read verse 1 for just a moment. And it says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A universal point of awareness for us. We sing about it because we're captivated by it. We wear watches on our arms or look at our cell phones to see what time it is because all of us have schedules that depend on time. But here's a truth that I think that the writer of Ecclesiastes has for us. If you're going to have a successful chase, if your life is going to make sense, you have to learn how to tell time. He's recapping his own chase here. And so the preacher says to us, I've come to this point. We looked at wisdom and we looked at the chase for pleasure and we think all the things up through the first two chapters that we've looked at just in two weeks and he says and I come to this thing I want to make an observation about the times in which we live and in the process of that he leads us to three questions 
I'll just deal with this sermon based on these three questions as they come out of this passage. Here's the first question. You saw it up there a little bit already. What is going on in your life? The first question that he asks us. That's verse 1. That's a pointer verse. Verse 1 that says there's a time for everything under the heavens. It's a pointer. It's a purpose kind of a statement. Now verses 2 through 8, he expands on that for us. So let's read those. Verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. Now, actually, let me stop here and let me make a comment or two about this. He uses a piece of Hebrew poetry uh, technique for us, a device, if you will, that is intended to draw some inferences for us. It's called a merism. And in the use of a merism, he gives one end of the spectrum and he gives the other end of the spectrum. And in doing so, he intends to underline the entire spectrum. So when he says there's a time to be born, that's one end, and a time to die, that's the other end, he really means everything in between it as well. A proper time for everything. So now we read a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This whole series now, matter of fact, my suspicion is that most of you, as I was reading through that, were thinking to yourself, a time, a time, a time, a time. He's saying a time, a time. That's his whole device. What is he saying to us with that? Basically what we find here in this poetic device, these merisms, both sides, starts with a positive, ends with a negative. Everything in between is to be underscored for him. Basically, here's his point. Life is timely. Look back through that part of your Bible, those few verses that we read. Those are just realities about life. There's things that tend to be, at least in the world that he lived in, those were normal kind of a things. There's nothing in there that is particular to a particular group of people. It's just the normal experience for all of us. Life is about time. But let's get a little specific for a second. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in these things. There's a bunch of them, and we could just pull them apart and all. But let me just give you a couple of examples of how timely his words are for us. Remember, the first question is, what is going on in your life? And so he starts off with there's a time to be born and a time to die. We get the time to be born part real well. I've told you every week now for a number of weeks that I have a new granddaughter. But my granddaughter's getting upstaged these days. We'll have none of that, but some people are trying. For instance, uh, day before yesterday, I think it was, Teresa's oldest sister uh, had her fourth grandchild, her middle son and his wife, had a baby. Her name is June. She weighed nine pounds, 14 ounces. The Cowboys are recruiting her already. So she's now the star of the family. We like births. Today, 
during a welcome time. Jason Drum brought their new baby down so that I could see him. Right? Don't we love the birth stuff? Okay? Now, you know, we just kind of are drawn to the new life that we see in babies. Most of the time. It's the other end of the spectrum that we don't like too much. It's the death side of things. Not a single one of us in here is free from the reach of death as it stretches through time and picks out your family and somebody passes away. It's the spectrum. We hear that and we basically say, that's life. People are born, people die, so it goes. It's the between those that we really emphasize in this today. He says there's a proper time to be born. There's a proper time to die. And in between that is where we live. I, I like to say it this way. For me, it communicates. Time is the vehicle in which we ride as we watch life go past. It's just part of it. People live. People die. But he also says another thing in all of this. He says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. I particularly like to use that part of it with sermon, uh, with uh, funeral sermons. Because one of the things that the reality of life is for us is that when we come to the end of life, as we just got through talking about, there are things that happen between the birth and the death that make us laugh. And so we sit in funerals, and it's usually one of these really downer, sad kind of times. But the reality is, if we're going to talk about that person, there was good times as well as bad times in most lives. And it's appropriate for us to laugh a little bit about that. But let me take it off of that and put it on your children. Most of us, many of us in here are parents. Listen, I used to sit back and just roll when I watched my kids. I mean, you talk about, well... You know, one guy said that it's no wonder that some species eat their young. I kind of understood that sometimes. Um, but my kids, Lauren especially and her brother Colin, would sit in the back of the vehicle while we were going from point A to point B, doesn't matter where it was. And if, if they weren't, you know, hacking on each other, they were being silly and laughing. And most of the time I sat up in the front just shaking my head because they knew how to enjoy life. There's a time to laugh. Now, I know that this is a Baptist church, and we're not supposed to laugh, and it's just not appropriate for Christians to be happy, but that's really true. There are times that we ought to laugh, but there are times that we ought to weep as well. Sometimes. There's nobody can break the heart of a parent like their child. And so we get the time to weep and time to laugh just as a parent dealing with your children. Time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time for war and a time for peace. In our country, for the last 50 years, we've been trying to decide which time it is. Is it time for war or is it time for us to stop being at war? And the national debate continues on, on that one point. And in the meantime, time passes. So what's going on in your life? Let's make sense of this for you. It's an interesting way that he pulls all of this together for us as he begins into this examination. 
Here's another slide for you. Here's a problem, I think, that surfaces as we come to this. Our tendency is to become so focused on the day-to-day stuff of our lives that we lose the big picture of our lives. Here's what I mean by that. That time to be born and the time to die, time to weep, time to laugh, let's put it back on our kids for a minute. If you're not in those days, most of us remember the days that we were so scheduled with our kids from point A to point B. We had to get them up. We had to get them ready for school. We got them ready for school. We had to get them in the car to get them to school. We got them to school, and then we had to go back to our business, going to work. As soon as school's out, somebody's got to pick them up, and then they have football practice or basketball practice or soccer practice or dance or whatever else it happened to be. And before we know it, we are scheduled in our day from sunup to past sundown, and ultimately we fall into bed and we say to ourselves, oh my goodness, what a great thing I get to go up, get up in the morning and do it all over again. And before we know it, those things begin to just suck at our souls. And we begin to just survive in the day-to-day stuff. And if it's not your children, then it's your job. If it's not your job, then it's stuff around the house. And we get so focused in that we begin to lose our perception on the bigger picture of life. The reason that's important for us, and it's part of this thing I'm calling the chase, is because when we fail to see the big picture, then we find this wicked turn in the chase. Because it turns us then to this inward focus and this downward focus and all we do is try to survive this day for you know it this day has run you into a world of hurt that brings me back to Pink Floyd by the way and this word from them from the 19 early 70s I think it was as true today maybe more so than it was in those days I pick up their song Lyrics right from where I stopped, and here's what they say. See if this doesn't fit our day. Tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. You are young, and life is long, and there's time to kill today. And then one day you find ten years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And you run, and you run to catch up to the sun, but it's sinking Racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older. Shorter of breath and one day closer to death. Let me tell you something. That captures the life of millions of Americans these days. And many people maybe even sitting in a room like this, when we stop and we think about our lives and where we have been, It's not hard to see. Ten years got behind you real fast. And that downward, inward focus on the day-to-day details of life causes you to miss the overall picture. And you may be ten years or ten decades into a chase and realize that it's all for naught. That's where verse 9 comes in, by the way. What gain has the worker from his toil. He goes back 
to what he said in chapter 1, verse 3. In his summary of the whole thing that he said, he looked at it, he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He asked this question in the final analysis, in all of this work that I do, what do I have to show for it? And he repeats that here in this chapter again. Through the ebb and the flow of life, ultimately he says, what use is it all? See, I think that's where we're tending to be stuck in time. That downward look that I'm talking about, the focus on the details rather than the bigger picture. That's why I ask you this question. What's going on in your life? Seems like a simple question. But it really demands of us that we step back from the day-to-day, from the grind, from the tireless and yet tiresome drive and step back from all of it and take a stock, an inventory of our lives and say, what is going on in my life these days? You can get so consumed with the schedule that in the final analysis, you lose your proper focus. So that's the first question. What's going on in your life? Is it possible for you to see your chase, or are you consumed with the details of the day? Second question that he asks us here, or that we need to ask because of what we see, this comes from verse 10 through 12. Here's the question. Based on your answer to the first question, what was that one, by the way? What's going on in your life? The next question is, where's God in that? Now, that's not the first time you've heard this question from me, because this is a fundamental question in life for us, Okay? But in this case, based on what he said to us, in the ebb and the flow of life, from the birth to the dying, from the tearing down to the building up, in the middle of all of that stuff, what's going on in your life and where's God in the midst of that? How do you make sense of life? He doesn't seem to be able to make much sense of it in verse 9, but verses 10 through 12 help us a little bit. So here's another thing I want you to get. Let's go ahead and read those verses, 10 and 11 at least. He says this. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything. By the way, verse 11 is a huge challenge. We're going to tear it apart here in just a second. So listen closely. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Here's the basic thing. When I ask you, where's God in the life situations that you have, here's essentially what I'm saying to you. We must learn to see God's hand in our life situations. Did you catch that? Now, that's easier said than done. Where's God in your situations? When you back off from that, it basically drives this point home. We've got to learn. You and I both have to learn to see God's hand at work. Now, there's an implication in that. I'm implying, actually, I'm just flat out stating it, that God is involved in your situation. But that's where we start struggling a little bit. He challenges me. Okay, this is a good time for me to get off my preacher high horse, make sure you recognize that I'm right down there in the trenches with everybody else. I have a problem wrapping my mind around some of what he's saying here. First part of verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Now, we've got to get the sequence of the argument right to get this, okay? Verse 1, he gives that overall statement. Verses 2 through 8, he expands on it a little bit, gives us the examples of what he's talking about. But now we come to this statement. Basically, what we've seen in the first part of it is God's involved in all of this. But there are some times in life that it's hard for me to see that it's beautiful. Is that true? Let me tell you, give you an example of that. I don't remember how many years ago now it's been. It's been a number of years ago. But I remember getting a phone call from my parents stating to us that my mother had been diagnosed with bladder cancer and she was, they didn't know how extensive it was. And so they were going to take her into a procedure in Huntsville over here in the hospital and, uh, and they didn't know what they were going to find. Now, I, I knew already that her father had died from cancer and her older sister had died from cancer. And she had had some cancer issues earlier in her life and had extensive surgeries tied to that. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, this is not good. And so I climbed in my car the day, that she, or the day before she was to have that procedure. And I drove from the Rio Grande Valley to Huntsville, about a seven-hour drive. I got to be honest with you. It didn't seem such a beautiful time to me. As a matter of fact, it was in that seven-hour stretch that I had a pretty serious conversation with God. You know, back and forth, the, you know, this doesn't seem right, God. And Okay, it wasn't back and forth. It was a one-sided thing. And I was saying, God, what are you doing? This is not right. My mind went through all of the arguments that we go through in times like that. Here's a lady who has endured at the hands of her two sons, if nobody else, enough heartache and grief for a lifetime for three different ladies. And yet she walked with the Lord through it all and held up God as our standard all through the case of it. And through that whole process, seven hours worth of driving, it was me complaining to God, how could this happen? No, that's not right. How could you let this happen? And the preacher has the audacity to say he has made everything beautiful in its time. I struggle with that just a little, to be honest with you. Well, at least on the surface, I do. By the way, here's a good rule of thumb for you. When you find things like that in Scripture that you struggle with, go ahead and be honest with God about it. Okay? He's big enough he can handle it, first of all. He wrote it. He knows what he means. Secondly... He made you. He knows what you're thinking, so you might as well share it with him. But also, I promise you, there's always more to it. And if you're willing to ask the questions, he will take you to a good answer. And in this case, here's what I think I got from all of that. Now, it wasn't immediate. My mom still has cancer. Now, they've dealt with it, and God's Hand has been on her through the whole process of that. And I can step back now and say, I can see all of that up to this point. Okay, But here's what God brought me to through all of that. Here's what I think he means. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He's gone to great lengths in the first nine verses of this to let us know life is ebb and flow. There's ups and there's downs. There's always things about it. If it's great today, then hold on because it's going to get worse later. That's what he's saying. But the point is, he has made everything beautiful in his time, is this. There has never, ever been a moment in all of the ebb and flow of life where God was not involved. (laughs) That's where you say amen, all right? Now, I know that's hard because we look backwards. 
And we see times where we go, wait a minute, God, when the bottom dropped out of my life, this says that you were at work. That's what the preacher's saying. I didn't see it. I get that. But you see, this, I believe, is one of those marks of spiritual maturity. I don't mean that in a demeaning kind of way. Please don't take it that way. The the reality is, as we look backwards on our lives, and we see the ebb and the flow, the time to be born and the time to die, we start putting all of that together in our lives, one of the things that if you have a faith that is maturing with him, is you can look backwards, and even in those times, there is that assurance that we have that God did not abandon us in the process. Now, he might not have made the process the way we wanted it to go. By the way, if he did that, then you'd be God, wouldn't you? But he always promised to take us through those times. It's not that the times are beautiful. It's that he's made us beautiful in the process of that. Well, okay, some of us are less beautiful than others. That's what he's driving at here. And so we can look at times, some of the worst moments of human history, the Holocaust, for instance. Terrorists flying planes into buildings. Terrorists breaking into an oil-filled complex and taking a bunch of hostages and executing some of them. Where's God in that? See, the mature faith says, that's man doing his worst to man, but God is still alive and involved. He has made everything beautiful in its time. It's a perspective thing. And you may be standing, I I, want to be totally honest with you, I want you to be that with me. You may be sitting there going, I don't see him today. I, I I don't see him, my situation is horrible. Let me tell you something. My experience with him allows me to say to you, he's at work. He hasn't dropped you. He didn't bring you this far just to drop you now. He's alive. And he cares. Here's the next thing. He also set eternity in the hearts of men. I think this is a statement that he gives us that helps us with the one I just made. We're different from the plant and animal kingdoms. We have a perception of time. He sets eternity in our hearts. We understand that time passes. So the ebb and the flow that we find in verses 1 through 8, now he says the only reason we can see that is because God allows us to see that. You ever wonder what your dog thinks and does while you're gone during the day? Now think about that. I have had days where I leave. Now, Teresa has a dog. She's just barely big enough for a good taco. But um, now... (laughs) I can say that here. I can't say it where I used to live because that would have been a talk. Um, her dog weighs about an eighth of an ounce. Okay? I don't know. It's the smallest dog I've ever seen. Right? And this dog has energy to match her size. She does nothing. I mean nothing. And I have had days where I leave the house and she is in her dog spot. And I'll come to work and work all day. And go back home in the evening, and she is in the exact same spot. 
And when I walk in, she raises one eye and looks at me a little bit and then kind of acts like I'm not there, which is another way of saying, please don't bother me. Now, my mind thinks to, in all of this time, is she aware of what has happened in the world? You know what the answer to that is? No. She's a dog. She doesn't have to get the time thing. This verse helps us because the preacher says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We have a perception of time. It helps me then when I go through the negative side of the spectrum. Because I know that this is not the end of it all. Now, sometimes I convince myself, this is it. I'm going to die. My dad used to say, I, you know, I get in a tough spot. My prayer to God is, God, you better do something. You're going to lose a good preacher down here. Well, you know what? We all pray that. We take off the good preacher and put the good whatever you do for a living. And that's your prayer sometimes too. God, if you don't come through, this world's going to lose a great person. But you see, our reality is internally built into us, we understand that there is the passage of time, the ebb and the flow. And he's made everything beautiful in his time, which means that God has allowed us to see those things and in the process of that, we know that this too shall pass. The good news is that if you're going through a hard time this morning, it'll get better. At least when you die and go to heaven, it'll be better, right? The bad news is, if you're on top of the world today, you better suck it up because the bottom's going to drop out pretty soon. Reality. The preacher says, and God is alive and at work through all of it. And the bottom line is the last part of that verse. I'm out of time, so I'm going to cut to the chase. He says, and it's for the fear of God. That word means reverence. It doesn't mean shrinking back like God's going to step on you or something like that. It means that as we survey history and the ebb and the flow of our lives, we see God's hand in it, and it causes us to fall on our face before a holy God and say, blessed is the name of the Lord. So where is God in your situation? You may be doing well. You may not be. Where's God in that? Last question. I'm going to mention it and I'm going to be done. Where are you going? This is that reverence part of it I was just talking about. Verses 12 through 15. Your response to life, situations, impacts your fulfillment. Did you catch that? In your chase, how you answer the first two questions definitively gets to how you answer the last one. If you don't see God in it, your chase has just got longer. But if you can look at the situation of your life and draw it down to say, you know, God's at work here. My life's up, my life's down, my life has had the whole spectrum. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then you're getting there. Verses 12 through 15, he comes to some weird kind of summaries for us. Says some things that we kind of looked at before. Essentially, he says, eat, drink, and be merry. How can you do that? And he says it's because God's in it. There's your answer to your chase right there. He pulls back the cover just a little bit. He'll pull it way back when we get to the final chapter of this book. But right now he says all the stuff of the time of your life, where's God there? So what's going on? Uh, In where I started, 
in your chase, you better learn how to tell time. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come before you once again. Same place as always, just needy. We need your perspective. We need assurance of your presence. We need to get real with you. So we pray that you'd help us to do that. Even now. Father, I know we look out across a crowd like this. Some of us got some rough stuff. It's hard to see your hand. Some of our lives are full of darkness now as much that we couldn't even see your hand if it hit us in the face. Times like that, Father, we need just to have the ability to just trust. So I pray that you would give each of us what we need in this moment to discern the times rightly. That we would live lives that are not quiet and desperate, locked in time and yet out of time. But rather these would be days for us where we can have a fresh awareness of just how involved you are in our lives. Burn that so deeply in us, Father, is our prayer that when we hit those hard times and those dark times, that we can hold on to what we know has always been true and trust you even in the hardest of places. Father, for some that means an immediate return to you. Some of us means a first time coming to you. Right now, we pray that your spirit would have freedom in our lives to do what you want. In Jesus' name.